0: Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience.
1: I I mean, to me, it started just like, I didn't have anything else to do. So I'm just gonna put tape and glue and whatever, all these odd things that are in the recycling bin and just put it together. But I think In those moments, I realized, one, I really liked building. I really liked to make things, and I really liked to make things with my hands. And I could create something that was in my own
0: vision. On this episode, I'm speaking with Ujiji Davis, a Brooklyn-born landscape architect and urban planner currently living in Detroit. She focuses on landscape and urban design, master planning, and strategic implementation projects. Her current research regards the importance of arts and culture in race and vernacular landscapes in the urban realm. She recently published a critical essay in the Avery Review with Columbia University, focusing on Black identity in American landscapes back in 2018. She's an advocate for STEM girls education and keynoted the fourth annual Young Women's Leadership Affiliate Convening and was a feature for CareerGirls.org STEM Leaders. She's also a 2018 Next City Vanguard Fellow. Ujiji holds a Bachelor of Science in Landscape Architecture from Cornell University and a Master of Urban Planning from the University of Michigan. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by authentic form and function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at AuthenticFF.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. UGG, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here.
0: So let's begin by taking a look at your, uh, your origin story, which I think begins with your parents in um, some rights. So can you tell us a little bit about them?
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from Brooklyn. I'm from bed and I grew up there with um, my parents. Uh, predominantly, I live with my mom. My dad lives in the Lower East Side still. And both my parents are artists, so uh, right now my mom is the executive director of the Green County Council of the Arts up in the Catskills, but she is a dancer, an actress, a storyteller, a visual artist. My dad is a classically trained guitarist, fashion designer, carpenter. He has a music group that now called Anka Davis and the Famous original Dajuki music players. So, my parents are still really active in their artistic backgrounds now. And they've always been that way when I was a, since I was a kid. Yeah. So, when I was much younger, my mom had a traveling folklore group called Bacayad. Bacayad means that in, in Jamaica, it's like patois for like you're in the, in the country. People who are native Jamaicans, they'll call Jamaica the Yad. Okay. Call themselves Yaddies, so it was really like a traveling group that told stories of Caribbean tales, Black American tales, songs, and they went all across the country. And it was really through that that I got a lot of my kind of cultural heritage through my mother. My mom's from Jamaica, and she migrated here when she was a teenager. And so, being I guess one of the the young people, a part of a part of her group in some ways, because I was often on stage with her as a, as a child, I was introduced to Jamaican culture, Jamaican history through dance and song and through my mom. And uh, I think that was uh, important for her to share that with me. When my mom migrated here to the States, she came to meet my grandmother who had come ahead of her. And at that point in time, there was a lot of civil unrest, a lot of gang violence, so It was kind of her way of sharing the beautiful side of Jamaica with me, Mm. although some of the reasons why they had moved here was not because of that. So, and my dad also moved to New York around the same time that my mom did. He's originally from Cleveland and he came to pursue his music. So like I said, he's classically trained. He studied in Vienna when he was in uh, in college. And then for a long time, when he came to New York, he played in Sun Ra's Orchestra, which is some of the, the catalytic music behind what people are now circling back to Afrofuturism and um, Afrofuturistic mm, yeah. um, type of music. Just kind of thinking about uh, kind of the intersection between jazz and African music, um, but also kind of extraterrestrial, celestial sound. So he was doing that for a really long time. Also in the 80s, early 90s, he was making fashion eyewear, kind of like like when Kanye West would wear those stunner shades, where they're not really meant to keep out the sun and they're not really prescription, but they're just fun to wear.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so <laughs> he he was um he was one of the pioneers behind fashion eyewear. So much so, actually, that in a Gap campaign, Gap had this really big campaign across New York where they were tagging buses and bus stops with. Gap ads, and one of his glasses was featured in the campaign. No way. Of course, without his permission, without his credit. So that was a fun case that he <laughs> <laughs> he went to. My dad actually represented himself. And did he win? Um, he did win, yep. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's um, a case that is referenced in terms of understanding intellectual property and and in and, and art. How do you commodify okay, it? Wow, um, and things like that. So yeah. interesting, random stuff.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, no, I I can't shake this idea that your parents were like the stereotypically cool parents. Like you have these friends and and like elementary school or junior high that had just like cool parents. And, and it makes me wonder what you were like as a kid. Did that shape you from a really early age, having parents that were so artistically inclined? Did that spark architectural interest in you early on? Like How did that get started?
1: Well, I will say when I was a kid, I did not think my parents were
0: cool. <laughs> was not, that that seems was like a not, theme across the board, yeah, perhaps.
1: I just, I, I mean, my parents were, I mean, they were really expressive and artistic. And I'm happy that they enveloped me in that world where I could dance, I could act, I could play music as well. But when they would pick me up after school wearing, you know, like the most elaborate, brightly colored fabrics or, yeah. you know, headpieces or glasses with feathers on them, like, like, other kids' parents didn't look like that. And mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> I was just, Is that your mom? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until I got to maybe junior high school that I really started to appreciate how fly my parents really are. Um, yeah. and, and they're still like that. I mean, it's, it's easy to pick them out in a crowd. And the connection to me when other people meet them, it's like, Oh, you must be Gigi's parents. So <laughs> totally. But I will say that being connected to the arts gave me a lot of creative freedom. And my parents did a really good job of nurturing me in that. And anything that I said that I wanted to do and try, they were really supportive mm-hmm. of. And I think for a lot of times, whether it was direct or indirect, I used art as an outlet for a lot of the things that I, I, wanted to, I was interested in or couldn't do. I guess, in terms of you had mentioned architecture. Yeah. (laughs) When I was in the fourth grade, I stole a chocolate bar from the corner store, Uh which, of all things, was a payday. And (sighs) it's probably like the least delicious chocolate or candy bar out there.
0: Can Um, it it even be considered a candy bar? Let's be honest.
1: I don't know. It's like a really salty, Granola bar? I don't isn't know. Isn't it isn't it basically it.
0: like <laughs> a bunch of peanuts smashed together with some chocolate on top? I think it's like a peanut bar, right?
1: It is a it is a peanut bar and yeah. I actually remember the the commercial that made me think, "Oh, I should totally eat this." And it was like an elephant was eating it and I was gullible. I thought that
0: yeah. <laughs> well, if animals if are an doing elephant it.
1: could like it. Yep. Anyone could. <laughs> And as I look back, it totally wasn't worth it. It wasn't good enough for what was to follow. (laughs) So, So my mom caught me in the store. I'm just not a good thief. I didn't grow up stealing. So I just picked it up and put it in my pocket. And she was, of course, really furious, of course, really embarrassed because this was like a community store that we go to all the time. And when I got home, part of my punishment was to give away all of my toys. And um, she was like, and that she's like, so you know what it feels like to be robbed of something. And in that, I had to give away my dollhouse, which was like a small, kind of clunky plastic Fisher Price kind of dollhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really loved it. And I used to play with it for hours, and that really hurt the most. And I, that's when I knew what, <laughs> what stealing, how on the other end, what it meant to be. Robbed of something, or for someone to take something that you really, really wanted and really loved. And um, I'd come home from school and just have, you know, after I do homework and after I do all the other after school programs that I was doing, I didn't have anything to do. So I started to build my own dollhouse and I would use like old. Cornflake, Cheerios, cereal boxes, pasta boxes to make the frame of the house. I had a little gable. I used pencils and like other like popsicle sticks to make beams so I could make floors, upper floors. And I just took like different pieces of trash or recyclables or things that I knew no one was going to use to make furniture, to really make this house. And after I built it almost entirely. I didn't have any, I didn't have a doll even to inhabit it. So <laughs> um, I remember that my mom gifted me with the small Barbie Kelly doll, which was the only thing that would actually fit inside. And I would start to like uh, make clothes for her. My mom taught me how to sew, and and that's what I did. I, and I, I like started to make this place and. I, I mean, to me, it started just like I didn't have anything else to do, so I'm just going to put tape and glue and whatever—all these odd things that are in the in the recycling bin—and just put it together. But I think in those moments, I realized one, I really liked building. I really liked to make things, and I really liked to make things with my hands, and I could create something that was in my own vision. I don't, that sounds a little God complex, but um, I could create my <laughs> own world.
0: Yeah, right. No, it makes sense.
1: Um, and then when when I the family would move, I'd break the boxes up <laughs> and move them to another box and just do it all over again. And that was something that to me was just something to pass the time. But looking back now, that was definitely something that was the the building blocks for the career that I chose, yeah. um, and even at that time, I wanted to be a doctor, but I moved into design, which now it all seems to make sense.
0: And so back then, you didn't even really consider it as like I'm designing something or I'm building Mm-mm. this thing or architecture related. It's just like a, it was a younger child basically exploring physical design and and just. Kind of tinkering around, but it became something you were sounds like pretty enthralled with
1: yeah it it definitely consumed a lot of my time until I you know I had another interest, which was you know I don't know uh, maybe I was dancing and I didn't have time or something like that but yeah yeah i didn't I didn't think it was design i don't to be honest, I don't even think that I knew that the definition of design could be attributed to what I was doing right so.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so and so from my understanding this this tinkering and this artistic flair was developed all throughout your childhood up into your teenage years into the point where you went to undergrad at Cornell. And so from what I understand you moved to Ithaca to attend Cornell which ended up being a pretty big shift culturally and certainly environmentally kind of thinking about that that pathway as a child moving up into those college years what led you to Cornell and how did you ultimately land there?
1: Well, when I was in high school, so I went to the Young Women's Leadership School of East Harlem, which is New York's first public all-girls school. And the, I guess the ethos of the school is to get every Young girl who who goes into the school and to get them into college. Yeah. And so from a very young age, um, I started the school in the seventh grade, and I was a younger seventh grader. So from a from a very early age, it was already well embedded. It's like you're going to go to college, so start thinking about what that looks like <laughs> and, and where mm-hmm. you might want to go, um, and how far. And we you know we already started visiting schools. Within the first you know year of the seventh grade and and some were local, some required a bus trip, but it was very much a part of the education there but to be honest, I don't even know how Cornell came to play specifically I just I knew I knew the name, I knew it was a great school I don't even think I knew what it ranked in terms of what I wanted to study because I don't think I knew what I wanted to study by the time Even I was in in twelfth grade. Sure, I had applied to a lot of my schools as an English major, just because that seemed to fit my interest at the time. And so Cornell was just was one of the names on the list of the schools that I I would really that I thought I would really like if I got in. Mm -hmm. Um, So and I did, and I didn't. I didn't even get into the English program, though. (laughs) Um, I I got into the urban and regional studies program. In the application, you could pick like your first and second choice. And so I didn't, I don't even think I knew what urban and regional studies was, but I was like, oh, that's, that sounds interesting. Yeah, let's just put that as number two or whatever the ranking was. And, and so then I got into that program, which landed me in the architecture school. And, well, first, I really liked Cornell. It was, it's a really great place for learning, um, it's a really beautiful campus. Um, there's tons of resources, tons of very incredibly smart people. And a lot of my you know, long life friends came out of Cornell. I think what was difficult for me was navigating socially. This mm. was my first time going to a all white space. Just in general, I grew up in New York. I, you know, it's really diverse. So there was never really a moment where I was the only person who looked like me in a room yeah. or in a place, or especially at school. I went to school with black and brown kids, uh, black and brown girls, and so that was um, a big shift for me to be in this all-white space, and then to be in that space with people who had very clear privilege, very demonstrated wealth solid connections, Um, their parents were the blah, blah, blahs of the CEOs of this and that. It was something that in a lot of ways, which I, I think a lot of other black and brown students who go to predominantly white institutions for school struggle with is, am I supposed to be here? Is this a place that I actually belong? Because I don't make My parents don't make what they make, you know? My or I didn't take all these classes before I went to to college. So It was, and then I had like a really, like, I watched Gilmore Girls, which was like kind of like my (laughs) inside (laughs) of like, what does going to these types of colleges mean? And the the girl, the daughter goes to Yale, and I thought that they'd be really similar. And, you know, she made fast friends and she, you know, she had like three boyfriends throughout (laughs) the season and stuff like that. And so I had this really, Poor.
0: What is the whitest? <laughs> what's the whitest college show possible? And it's the Gilmore Girls.
1: Well, that was my research. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: that was my research, and I had a really poor representation of what I thought me going to Cornell was going to be like or similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I was going to thrive immediately, but what ended up happening, which I think is a positive, instead of shrinking. And questioning my presence, it actually made me exert myself a lot more. I was in spaces, I was in classes where people really didn't, especially in the urban and regional studies program, a lot of people didn't know what it meant to live in a city or what it meant to live with a diverse group of people. Interesting. And
0: and you're coming um, from the complete opposite viewpoint, really.
1: Complete opposite viewpoint, mm-hmm. where I don't know what it's like to just be the only one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I realized that me feeling self-conscious about who i who I am or who I was, what I looked like, ended up being a strength that I could employ. I knew that my perspective was always going to be strong and rooted in experience. It was not going to be based on a book that I read or a quote that I remembered. It was going to be that i I know how things change if I walk from Central Park south to Central Park North. You know, so so in the classroom was a little bit difficult and and I had to kind of as some people, you know, put your some hairs on my chest and really say (laughs) things (laughs) say things you know to really promote or exert myself in that space. So yeah.
0: And so you originally went to Cornell for with the intention of its kind of architecture and planning program, is that right?
1: Yes, I was in the urban planning program
0: to start. And did that, earlier you referenced kind of checking the box, was that more of an extension of those early explorations as a child? Or am I making too much of a stretch there? Or or is that something that was just kind of like, this is what I think I want to do and and I'm going to give it a shot. And how did all that start to play out at Cornell?
1: I think the latter I think I think it's I, I did not know what urban planning was okay. when I applied to Cornell um at all, and it just sounded real good <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, my first slot was English. I was like, oh I'm going to be Tony Morrison to you know part two, but I'm thankful that I got into the urban playing program because it really cracked open the door for all the stuff that I've been doing now and Has has really laid the foundation for the things that I even kind of switched up. So, you know, I think when I was in the program, while I liked it and while I felt really smart, (laughs) and to share my lived experience and you know to share the 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 books that I had read, it was a lot of sociology to me. It was Mm. it was almost like people learning how it was to live like people that I already knew were living. Which was like I guess it wasn't that interesting to me in that way. Like sort of metal. Theor- yeah. Yeah. Like to theorize living conditions. It 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 created a distance in some ways. And so like like I know what it's like to like live in a city that has like really bad air quality and water, you know, where like you can distinctly go into a neighborhood that is less diverse than where you just walked across the street from. Like I know what that what that looks like and what it feels like. So it was really while I felt learned and well read and that was a big confidence boost, it just it felt there was no like so what? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, so we know that people live in these conditions and what are we gonna do about it? And so that's that's what I wanted to know how do you how do you make change and and how does it how do you do something in a way that matters to the people that you're claiming to make change for
0: yeah
1: and so i that's when I actually transferred I left the the planning program because I didn't feel like we were doubling down on the silhouette so and That to me, it was a waste of conversation.
0: And so you you transferred into the landscape architecture department in an attempt to learn about that how question. How do we change environment? How do we make it mean something? And what did you start to learn when you were in that program? So, well,
1: one, I learned. I learned what design was, <laughs> 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 which was like, I guess, the full circle moment of being in my bedroom on my floor, tearing up cardboard together and gluing it back. So I learned what design was, and I learned what design could do. And in this case, through the landscape architecture program at Cornell, I was taught that design is, is a problem-solving tool. That's, that's what it is. And you can do it. There, there are moments where you can do it very elegant, and it 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 manifests in a in a very physical, beautiful way. Or you can solve that problem kind of like clunky, and it doesn't look as sexy as you want it to, but it does the job. And we learned, in addition to you know, design in terms of how do we get someone from point A to point B in a physical setting, or um, it was really about how do we use natural systems how do we manipulate natural systems to do what we want them to Mm. do to evoke the change that we think needs to happen so how does water run across the site and how can you redirect it to you know to make sure that it doesn't get polluted or or how do you use certain plants to clean the air or to clean the water it was like real tangible stuff the real tangible solutions and granted, it's still a design program and you're still working relatively in a vacuum. So you've yet to actually see how your ideas manifest. But to me, it it solved the so what? It was like I learned mm. that I could manipulate the landscape as a way to improve natural systems and and human relationships with either the environment or with each other. And that to me was everything that I wasn't getting from the program before. And I think that's where it all clicked. And I was like, "Oh, this is the field that I need to be in. And it's really about outside and how do we get people to be out there and, and to love and value the places that they're, they are in and to feel valued because those places have been invested in, in these types of ways. And so I think that's when things made sense and I haven't looked back.
0: <laughs> Let's put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that after a little bit. But I want to switch gears and bring up one of the main reasons why I came across you and how I came across your work is because of your research. So mm-hmm. you, you dive deep into African-American history, how that intersects the history of land usage and, and many more topics beyond land usage. I should add, but I want to know how did you first find your way into your own research projects? Because these aren't things that you're necessarily getting paid for. They're just personal <laughs> projects and things that you're interested in. So talk to us a little bit about that.
1: So I think first, I come from a family of researchers. With my mom being really invested in her heritage um, in her Jamaican culture, she has spent a lot of time especially in her younger years going back and forth and interviewing family members writing down things that she remembers and just kind of piecing stories together of our of our family and who you know and sometimes it's as simple as a family you know it was a family tree who married who so and so had 12 kids so right. where are they now <laughs> and so she she did a that for a really long time and on my dad's side my grandmother who's passed now She was a big researcher. My grandfather, who she married, was orphaned in the 30s during the Great Depression. And um, as a young black child, and also for the the states to have like a really infantile type of foster care system, which kind of really didn't exist. It was really within the church. There's a lot of things that got lost. People, my grandfather was separated from his brother several times, but they miraculously found each other again in Ohio. So in my grandmother's assistance of helping my grandfather find out who his parents were and what happened to him, she ended up finding a lot of information about her family. So both my grandmother and my mother have documented information of whether it's family history or family folklore. Okay. So that's kind of all, maybe that's DNA, just kind of this who am I question uh, that's inside of me and wanting to know how that fits into the spectrum or into the sphere um, that I'm living in Yeah. and how does my lived experience, how does that connect to the histories that precede me,
0: I guess, yeah, probably. And- Exactly. And you mentioned to me um, earlier that it started with your identity. like what what is black culture? What does that mean for me? You know mm-hmm. you you kind of raised some questions of yourself of like what does it mean to be black and an American? And it sounds like those were things that you started with, almost like a baseline research project for yourself.
1: Yeah, I guess my relationship with blackness is very different from my mothers, my fathers, my grandparents. And and of course, anybody else who is also who also shares that common identity, Mm -hmm. but that could be generational. You know, I'm a first generation born into this country, so that also has a different layer of identity. and, And what does that mean? And or is there a responsibility behind it? And then also understanding like Americanism, I guess, and and what does that actually mean when we add into all these layers of race? Is there space? for blackness and American identity mm-hmm. um, And I think you know there are a lot of things that tell us no that there isn't space but there's a lot of history that is just also really uncovered that says yes, actually it's a part of Americanness And I think when I was in when I was at Cornell I took a class on like, Conservation of of the wilderness, or like the American Wild, or something like that, and um, we read a lot about stewards of the American landscape. Um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Thoreau, John Sierra. So we had all these people who were you know who would go into the mountains and sit there and think for a minute and say, <laughs> "Wait, this is this is beautiful. <laughs> we shouldn't destroy it." You know, <laughs> and
0: but they were all white. Uh,
1: They were all white (laughs) and totally ignoring one First Nation peoples who have been there way before, who have always, you know, as at least as as the way it's been documented, have always been stewards of, of the landscape. But then it also just kind of jumps and skips over their experience and their doctrines into like these core um, adventurers, these pioneers. And then and then we have laws that we put in place in, in you know 1970, blah blah blah. It's <laughs> just like what happened before and what happened in between? And then what is the relationship with the like the American landscape if we're thinking about it as this high level kind of thing? Were there ever black? People that were stewards of the landscape in the same way that we like glorify Henry David Thoreau. Did we ever have a relationship where the land was, I won't, I not not a resource, but uh, even a respite, you know, for us mm-hmm. in this country? And given, you know, and given the history of how. Black people, enslaved Africans and enslaved African Americans, came to to be in this country. What is their relationship, or 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 what is it like? Is it is it filled with a disconnection because it's not actually historically our land, or is there like a newfound relationship that's kind of happened over time? So those were questions that my professor at the time couldn't answer, and because she had, I mean, it was not part of Her understanding of who people who were stewards of the American landscape. Mm -hmm. It was only these few people. And then later on, you know, other presidents that, you know, and other other groups out of the 70s, when we were having all of our biggest and, and best demonstrations, that was when we rekindled our love for the environment again, which just leaves a lot of big holes. And just human relationship, if it is human-American relationship with the landscape. So, for my thesis, for that class or final essay, I wrote a paper that tried to very early on try to piece together what the African-American experience was with the American landscape by looking up songs, Negro, spiritual songs that were that might have been sung during slavery. But then also, written biography or autobiography by enslaved peoples or free peoples who were talking about the land. Um, And whether Mm -hmm. that was a relationship to the desire to own land or in a lot of the cases, the American wild, this kind of unknown territory as a means of freedom and freedom seeking. Yeah. And so it just kind of it just kind of kicked open another door it was like okay so there is a relationship here and it is historic and it is really old um so what does that mean and, wh- and why do we feel like there isn't there's like a lot of push like oh there's not a lot of black people that go to national parks well like well, what's the what's the real relationship and how do we how do we start to tell that story so that it's not just kind of like this new diversity initiative it's actually rooted in something that that's already existing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was like that class, and while I like while I kind of struggled through it, it was probably one of the best classes that I could have taken because it and it was through the planning program actually, <laughs> and um, it really it, it cracked open the door as I had already kind of jumped the bridge to be into a different department that I thought was solving helping me understand how to solve problems. But then, real recognizing the importance of history and foundation building before we start to address problems. If you don't mm-hmm. actually know where the root is, you're not actually solving. You're only solving something at the surface. Mm-hmm. You're not actually solving the 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 true of uh, it is stigma or whatever.
0: Well, before we jump into a little bit more about your your career path, I, I do want to plug the reason why I came across a lot of your work, your work in the first <laughs> place, which was the Avery review essay. I believe that was 2018. Yeah. Um, we're going to link to that in the podcast notes, but it, it's a really great look at black identity and land and, and the landscape of that pun intended, I guess, about the relationship <laughs> with land. And why don't you, why don't you touch on that just briefly before we move on? Cause that's a, that's a great piece.
1: Yeah, so I titled I titled the Avery essay The Bottom: The Emergence and Erasure of Black American Landscapes. And I start not to like be a spoiler alert, but I start with trying to define or if not help to define a term called the bottom, which is something that comes up a lot in uh, literature uh, that's detailing black experience in in, in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's a it's a historic term that means a couple different things in different parts of the country. And so the bottom, if if those are interested, for those who are interested in looking it up, is oftentimes a term given to the urban areas that black people live in. It just it, it it kind of manifests that definition manifests in different ways. People here in Detroit, there's an, a historic neighborhood called Black Bottom, and I think there's a little bit of questioning about what the origins of that is. Um, some people say that it's based on the actual soil type and the actual landscape type of being marshy. Mm, yeah. um, and some people also think that it's it's a it's a racialized term. Because it wasn't called that um, until Black people lived there. So, okay. so the bottom comes up as a term, uh, especially in the between in the 30s, 40s, across the country. You can think even Louisville, Kentucky, Nashville, a lot of different places where there were very uh, small, very dense Black enclaves. And what's I guess what's Interesting, or maybe not so interesting, but maybe frustrating, is that a lot of those neighborhoods, those enclaves, don't exist anymore. And a lot of them had reached a peak moment of wealth building and having a high concentration of professionals, and and honestly, thriving within a segregated, a lawfully segregated country, in which. Black people and other people of color who are living in, in this country were not allowed to be patrons or to be patronized by um, their white counterparts uh, who lived in the same city. Mm-hmm. Um, they could they couldn't live together through discriminatory housing and mortgage lending practices. They couldn't dine together. They went to separate theaters or had separate entrances. So a lot, you know that. A kind of separate but equal kind of rationale that was had not really been fully abolished, and so these were enclaves that thrived despite of that by only patronizing within its own community, only being able to lend um, housing and 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 loans to people within their community. Mm. But interestingly enough, in the by the mid 50s to the early 70s, a lot of these neighborhoods. Are completely obliterated. And their place oftentimes is a is a highway. <laughs> mm. So the the essay kind of goes into the history of what it means, what what a bottom is, um, and 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 how what how it came to be. I touch on two precedents, one maybe about 50 years old, and then one that's even older than that, and just really thinking about. What, what has been the historic facilitation of one, bringing these these um, enclaves up, but then also tearing them down. Mm-hmm. And what can we learn from that history that is, it's a cycle. It has continued to happen throughout time. It's, it was, it's never been pinpointed at one point in time. And so when we start to think about urban development again now and, and thinking about other other cities like Buffalo, Cleveland, Things that have been uh, long depressed from the loss of industry, and there's a new kind of appetite to to be building there. What is it that we can learn from you know the history that we've that we've employed, and what what can we do differently, or if we can at all? And it, it focuses around Black experience and, and and Black relationship with land here, and if there really if there's any allowance to have a continuous relationship.
0: Mm. The Avery Review essay, we will link to that in the the podcast notes, highly recommended. One of the examples that you're alluding to is a very, very prominent example in the American landscape of history and and certainly a big cultural piece of uh, the New York City area. So I I highly recommend that uh, for all the listeners to take a look at. Let's pivot back into your career path, and and you know today you you're in Detroit. You work for Smith Group, but you started back in New York City, where your uh, where your roots are, and you worked at both Estee Lauder and the Central Park Conservancy. I'm curious how these jobs more or less primed you for the migration to the Midwest where you're living today.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I started with Estee Lauder working in their design office for retail design and construction. And that connection came about from Uh, going to my high school. We often had uh, other successful women come and talk about their jobs and really just kind of introduce new or different career paths that were different from, you know, doctor, teacher, lawyer kind of uh, palette. And um, so through that, I met some women that worked at a lauder and they were great mentors they are great mentors and um, when I graduated from Cornell I was able to apply into their internship program which landed me in the retail design and construction office mm. for about half a year and so and that was a really cool experience it was It was still design, but it was, of course, (laughs) I was now inside. (laughs) Yeah, and um, and design—it's in
0: the design realm, right?
1: It's in the design realm. Yeah, and then also, retail design is 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 very different from, uh, I think, traditional architecture. It's very much about visibility and selling something. You know, Um, there's this aspect of physical marketing um, that's associated Mm -hmm. with it. So that was a an interesting experience to to learn. And then I transitioned into working at the Central Park Conservancy, where I worked primarily in construction administration. And at the time that I started working there, the park was doing a playground redesign or renovation campaign. There are probably about almost 30 playgrounds in the park, And most of them at this point are historic. (laughs) So it's historic to the park. And so it was really about upgrading facilities, making sure everything was safe, and also redesigning things that were just at this point, if they weren't historically relevant, um, and just looked out outdated, Mm -hmm. were outdated, and could pose any potential hazards to kids. So I was one of the lead point people outside. Uh, managing crews, and I'd receive my stack of drawings, and I would do my best to make sure that we were designing and building to the letter. And so that really was a really good experience in understanding the connection between design and building. Okay. Um, and so back to me on the floor, ripping up cardboard. <laughs> and-, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so while I myself was not, you know, putting in granite block curbs and stuff like that, it was, I, I could see how things were made. Um, and even the the order in which things happened that I think was was very eye-opening for me to, to understand how, what does landscape construction look like? And what are the tools, if it is drawings or otherwise, what are the tools that help you communicate that to other people? And then, yeah, how do you check and, and, and make sure that you know what it is that you're doing and, and what the reason is? For for building things the way that you're designing them too. So that was a really tremendous experience. And I was there for about three years mm. um, doing that.
0: Let's talk about a really important transition time for you. Sometime in the middle of 2015, you made the decision to move to Detroit from New York. And obviously that's a pretty big shift professionally, culturally. <laughs> there's there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot to unpack there, but you're also pursuing a bit of education. As well at the University of Michigan, and and I want to know why then why Detroit? What was the impetus to that?
1: So my journey to Detroit, I try to be really honest about this, especially especially when Detroiters ask me, because <laughs> Detroiters being being here in Detroit is a hard club uh, to be welcomed into, mm. and. They are good at sniffing out BS, so I try to be honest about my answer at all times. My interest in Detroit came with a dose of naivete. And I say that because when I was at at my desk at the Central Park Conservancy and I'd have my break or lunch or whatever, I would be reading articles in Landscape Architecture Magazine about things that were happening in Detroit. And they were I mean they were well written to start, um, and then also just really interesting and it seemed to me that this was also probably a more obvious way of problem solving through landscape architecture. The work that i that I was doing at Central Park was largely improvement and improving upon an asset that people already had and when I started to read about land strategy and public space, and, and, uh, and vacant land remediation, and assembly, and built neighborhood building, and, and, and occupying vacant homes. And there are a lot of really different narratives of, of things that were happening in the city, and, mm-hmm. and how that was connected to grassroots leaders, and residents who had been here through the ups and downs, and people who were equipping themselves to learn how to design and, and how to plan for the future of their own neighborhood, and of course, to me, I think that sounded all really romantic as mm-hmm. as as it related to what landscape architecture could be. Just mm-hmm. like, oh, this is this is this is a place where people are empowered and they're doubling down on a on a fifty year strategic plan, and that was what I was receiving and and I and I knew of, of there were. You know, There are some lows with that and prioritizing neighborhoods over others or uh, people being more resourced than others. But I felt that this, that this was probably speaking to me in the way that I was searching when I was in undergrad yeah. and trying to find the so what. And while I was at Central Park, I, I felt like maybe I wasn't really answering that question as much as I wanted to. And I thought, well, this is a great place to be an agent for, like, a lot of these local organizations that are really trying to, you know, bootstrap their way back to the Detroit that they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what I started to do, unbeknownst to most people <laughs> at the office, I started to highlight names in these articles. I'd rip rip the article out. I would um, circle the organizations, and I just started cold calling. A bunch of these people, and it was really weird because they all, all, everyone that I called had time to talk to me, and <laughs> it was, it was weird. I was just like
0: unlike the East like, Coasters,
1: unlike East Coasters, because yeah. we're all kind of bullies <laughs> and stuff. But it was, it was so bizarre because I had a really like it was like a just like when someone says hi, I'm from New York, and I want to know what you do, like that's. That's a weird way to continue a conversation, (laughs) Um, and like we don't even give uh, you know like telemarketers that amount of time to kind of get through their first line. So it was very open to me, and that was something that I was really looking for. I was looking for people who could be open about what their experience was, just so I could have a better understanding of what it was that I was going to be looking Mm -hmm. looking forward to. But that was how I built my base network. Was through calling people, asking if they had five, ten minutes to talk, and those talks turning into an hour. Sometimes I'd even go into the bathroom and tell tell people like I don't feel well. I I gotta go and sit in the bathroom <laughs> for a while, and I would be on the phone <laughs> talking to people and taking notes. So then I it prompted me to visit the city because Google was honestly no help. You type in Detroit and you see nothing but dilapidation, a lot of ruin porn, as we like to say, mm. um, of just empty, big, grand houses, and you know, people walking long miles. And when I got here, it was it was a different beat. It was it was it was really different. Um, and even in the places where there was vacancy, there was still activity. There was still a notion that people were loving this place and. I met with all the people that I talked to on the phone. I had these kind of inadvertent interviews where people were just kind of asking me about my interests. And I had I had resumes on me, but I don't think that I was actively job searching. I just thought that I was getting more information. And then before I moved and I and I could come back to New York. Just all of a sudden, I just started seeing everything that there was to see about Detroit that was Mm. outside of the magazine across the street from the office. The Central Park Conservancy's office is like around Central Park South, and there's a Strands bookstore outdoor stand there. And I would always pass by at least once a week to buy a book. And just suddenly when I had come back from my first trip to Detroit, every book that they were promoting as like, oh, the book, you know, that's on sale today was had to do with Detroit. Whether really? it was set in Detroit, it was about Detroit, it was I just like, or it was, had Detroit in the title, Detroit was a character, I don't know. But <laughs>
0: so I thought that maybe a little confirmation bias there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I felt like this must be a sign.
0: It's a sign, yeah.
1: So and it was. And I applied, I also applied to graduate school, and I said, if I get into Michigan, University of Michigan, then I know I'm supposed to be in this part of the world right now, and then I, I did. I got into the, Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, and within that week, I also got a job offer. So I was like, oh, okay, so this is double confirmation. Yeah. And yeah, so then I, I made. I told my parents. They were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't. They didn't, had never been to Detroit. They never really had a relationship with Detroit. But each of them had all moved, you know, from places that were very different from where they had grown up. So they they completely understood, and they were really excited.
0: So yeah. And so in parallel, you were going back to school and you were working a professional job. What were the what was what were those days like? That I have to imagine that was kind of
1: oh, I don't arduous. Recommend it.
0: Those were those were probably probably pretty long days.
1: I don't recommend it to anybody, Um, but I did it because, I guess I did it because I wanted to. There's there's always that, but also it's hard to pay for school if you don't have a job. So I wanted to make sure that I could remain in in good academic standing and and pay for the things that I needed to get Mm -hmm. done and then also pay to live. And feel like I could easily move around the city. You do need a car out here. So that was probably like the biggest new expense Mm -hmm. to anticipate. I didn't have a car before. So I bought a car. And I don't know how many people know this, but Detroit has some of the highest car insurance rates in the country. And that's something that's actually like a socioeconomic issue because there's no real standing for why. The, the car insurance is so high. So I had I had a, a number of really new expenses that was also an, an incentive. But I, I wanted both experiences. I, I mean, I wanted to work at the job that I have, and I wanted to go to school. So it was a lot of early mornings and late nights. Yeah. Um, but it was worth it because I learned a ton. There were moments where I could actually apply something directly that I was learning to my work at my job, and I had a lot of support. I didn't. I didn't do it alone. My my job knew that I was working, and so they they assisted me in the ways that they could. Whether it was by project scheduling or making concessions based on my own schedule. So I was really thankful for that. And then they. I even had um, mentors from my job, even kind of make. Comments on my my thesis. So mm. everything everyone was very supportive of of what I was doing. Um, so I will say I was tired for <laughs> two years straight. <laughs> I was absolutely tired, but I don't think for me it couldn't have happened any other way.
0: Well, I have to imagine you're you're still tired because let's talk about the things that you are doing. That's a great segue. Both with your own projects and the teaching that you're doing today, you still keep quite busy. <laughs> um personally research uh university of michigan teaching what are you working on outside of quote unquote work and what are you up to today why why are you doing those things like what's that connection for you
1: ooh that's a good question why am i doing these things <laughs> <laughs> um well i guess i i, I like i like it <laughs> i like it I don't like the tired part, but I recognize the sacrifice made to do the things that you really love to do. So research, which you mentioned first, that's something that's always kind of in the back of my mind. I do want to build on the, the essay that I wrote for the Avery. And I, I think there's there's moments to dive deeper, and I'm, I'm eager to kind of see where that could go. Teaching, I'm getting into teaching. I really like it, but oh I am not sure if I'm actually a good teacher yet.
0: Um- <laughs> teaching is <laughs> very hard.
1: It is really hard, I think. So I taught a class last summer at the University of Michigan for their semester in Detroit program. And it's really cool. They, they get students, some who are from the city, but mostly students who are not. And they live together, they work for different kind of local grassroots organizations and they take classes together. And so my class was one of their electives around arts and culture as an economic vehicle for cities and thinking about Detroit as a, a case study. And uh, we we had it was a really we had some really great discussions, really great readings. I got some good pointers of constructive criticism from them in terms of how to how to make the class stronger. But Ultimately, we also toured a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of places that even some of the native Detroiter students hadn't been to before or hadn't really spent a lot of time. Eastern Market, Mexican Town. I even took them to the Underground Techno Museum, which is apparently really hard to get into. You have to know someone who knows somebody. And so, I mean, honestly, throughout it all, I thought I was doing a terrible job. But I was really surprised at the end when they there are some people who explained that this was their favorite class of the summer. So oh, wow. that made me feel really good. I'm actually also going to be teaching at the University of Detroit Mercy in January. I'll be teaching my first design class, just a foundational landscape architectural class for the master of architecture students who are at, the, at that school. So I'm really excited and I, have some, I do have some more work to do to kind of get that syllabus together. So I really like teaching, and I really want to be better. So I'm, I'm fortunate for the opportunities to, to try again, that people are entrusting me with their students' education mm. to a certain extent. <laughs> um, so, And then I guess back to the research side, I've been tapped by um, some other researchers that have been working in uh, codifying a genre or a doctrine within architecture, called hip hop architecture, which is really, I guess the base The base consideration is of all the cultural movements that we've had, classical, Baroque, Brutalist, as this manifests into physical and musical manifestations, I guess, not to be redundant. But where does hip hop land um, as a cultural revolution in the realm of architecture? Hmm. Um, and so, if we have all, you know, Renaissance period, classical period, if we have all these other periods that have come uh, into fruition through dance, music, visual arts, painting, and also architecture, where does hip hop land within that as well? Yeah. Um, so, I'm fortunate to have the chance to work with them. Seku Cook from Syracuse University is currently publishing a book. Around it, he also held uh, an exhibition last year at the Center for Architecture in New York, in which he enlisted some of uh, a ton of other architects and designers who kind of helped to fill in the, these gaps of, of kind of what we are understanding to be hip-hop architecture. Mm. And one of my mentors, who was also my professor at Michigan, uh, we call him the OG of hip-hop architecture, Craig L. Wilkins. And he was probably one of—he was the first person to coin the term and create uh, some of the first uh, language and research behind it. And so I'm lucky when I get to have a drink with him and pick each other's brains. So that's something that is uh, also emerging, um, which I think is a really exciting type of space to be in, and really thinking about the cultural, if anything, at a baseline level, cultural influences, and what it is that we can learn from them as a means to identify the problem within the problem solving tools of design, be it architecture, landscape, architecture, or planning. So. Yeah, so I don't have a date for that, so I can't really shout them <laughs> out.
0: But it's coming, coming well, soon. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I was rapid fire taking notes here. I'm gonna make sure that we link to Seko Cook and Craig Wilkins in the podcast notes as well, so um, we can have a few follow ups there and and also make sure to reference Hip Hop Architecture as well because I know there's a few things percolating there. Yeah. Um, as we look ahead here and start to wrap up, I I want to. Get a sense for what you're excited about. You know, you have a lot on your plate, it seems like you're doing a lot of really interesting things. You're you're spending your time in a few different buckets, putting your putting yourself in a few different buckets. What energizes you though? Like what are you most excited about uh, looking ahead here?
1: I <laughs> I guess part of the work that I do is like is the preparation work. It's the work, it's the foundational stuff that helps you make the informed decision of what it is that you're actually gonna do. Mm -hmm. So I'm ready to build um, and I'm really excited to, to do that. I think that a lot of my time in Detroit has been very intentionally about learning about the city and learning about the people. I think that that has been really important to me. I think it's really difficult to just enter a space With your own scruples and not really have a conversation with anybody else about what theirs are. Mm -hmm. And I think that laying my own foundation and just really trying to understand the city and the history of the city and the history of its people, I think that that makes me, that will make me a better designer, not necessarily by an award standpoint, but really by an intentionality and an impact standpoint. So, I have been here for almost five years, so I think that I, I am excited for the opportunity to really start putting furnishing to the ground. And um, there are a couple arising opportunities, some I can't really talk a lot about, um, but they are manifestations of both my independent research and the the learning that's been had um, at the firm that I work at now, which is Smith Group. I work in the Urban Design Studio under Dan Kincaid. We do a lot of strategic planning and master planning, which is grounded in research and understanding the historic shifts of the city. And he he is uh, he's from Detroit. Uh, he's been working here for many many years, and research is also really foundational to his practice. And so there's a really great mesh there in how how we as researchers around design use that as a foundation to implement or suggest solutions to to issues so mm. um, i think i've hit the five, the five year mark now <laughs> of kind of kind of observing and waiting and i'm really eager to start to build so i love it and also being a better learning how to be a better teacher i think
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lifelong uh, lifelong pursuit i'm sure um, right Well, one of my favorite questions to ask and and arguably my favorite is what I call the final question. And it is, given all of your experience and your background and your thoughtfulness regarding uh, your professionalism and your giving back natures and giving back tendencies, I want to know from you, tell us who we should be paying attention to that's doing groundbreaking or inspiring work out there.
1: Yeah. So I I thought about this for a second. And I would say Amanda Williams from Chicago. Amanda is an artist or an advocacy artist, I guess, is also a good way to kind of coin what she does. She's trained as an architect. She's from Cornell, so not to not to put the <laughs> Cornell mafia out there. But um, she's really, really brilliant. And uh, the work that she does is really around disrupting space and bringing light to some of the the spatial relationships around like real critical human issues. A lot of her work is in Chicago, so Chicago shares a lot of a lot of the similar stains of of urban renewal as Detroit does. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to neighborhood vacancy, inequality, loss of losing a ton of population over time, and so what she does as an artist. And what I appreciate as a landscape architect is she uses color against the landscape to kind of expose whether it's a color issue mm. um, that we have in, in the U.S. and how that manifests into these kind of larger institutional systems that create this significant disparity between or uh, between people and 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 um, what they look like and where they're from and how much money they have, so. Honestly, I couldn't go down the list of, of, of her resume of how many awards she's won, how many, uh, the fellowship she, she's earned. But I do think that the work that she does is really prolific. It's simple, but it packs a really powerful punch. And I think that she is somebody that, although she is not a landscape architect, I think she is somebody that other landscape architects should look toward as mm-hmm. someone who does these types of interventions in the landscape to really kind of provoke a reaction around disparity. So that's uh, that's my plug.
0: Amanda Williams, we will be linking to her work as well in the podcast notes. But more importantly, Ujiji, you've done it. We've made it to the end. And what I want to do, one more thing here is roll out the red carpet for you. <laughs> I want you to tell us what you're up to and where the rest of the world can find you online.
1: Um, so I'm still in Detroit, so find me downtown or on the east side, I probably the best place to find me is on Twitter at B-U-T-T-A-P-H-R-O, Butterfro. And that's where you can kind of be up on all my antics and all my updates. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best place I can I can tell anyone.
0: Ujiji, thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.